I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll break down reports that China may restrict exports of rare earth minerals to the U.S., a move that could jeopardize production of high-tech military equipment, including the F-35. Plus, we'll unpack how the Biden administration's approach to economic and national security compares to the Trump administration's. And the trade guys will react to the latest comments from the incoming WTO director on vaccine manufacturing and distribution. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we're back. We were only gone a week, but it's fun to say we're back. I watched a rerun of The Color of Money this past weekend and, you know, the famous line where Paul Newman says, I'm back. That it just it just jumped into my mind. So we're back. And we're back to talk about China rare earths. So there's a situation here where China is exploring limiting the export of rare earth minerals that are critical for manu- the manufacture of American fighter planes like the American F-35 fighter jet and other sophisticated weaponry. And this leaves us with what options. If China is going to cut off some of our source materials, what does this do to the whole equation here? These components actually are quite critical. These these minerals are critical to many high technology products. Almost every electronic device, every every integrated circuit contains them to some extent, but they're they're quite broadly used, and and there aren't any any respectable substitutes to uh, certain of these materials. So it's a critical component in the manufacturing of advanced products, even even though it's at the very beginning, the commodity uh, beginning of it. And so so they are important components. And I think the most important element that I'd bring up, and we can, we'll talk more about it, is we call them rare earths, but as a share of the earth's crust, they're not particularly rare. I mean, they're, they're findable. Uh, we know in the United States that there are 19 states with with deposits that are of high enough quality that we could we could do our own extraction. So I'll leave that. But uh, from a policy standpoint, China has previously restricted its exports of of materials like these rares and in fact rares themselves. So it's not unexpected behavior. It is bad behavior. Yeah, but so now they've put controls on production and export of seventeen rare earth minerals in China, and. That's about 80% of the global supply. So this is not insignificant. Well, they've done this before, and they've been taken to the WTO and and lost twice. But I think we discussed this once. They lost on the grounds of discrimination. I mean, their their argument was that there's an exception in, in WTO rules for protection of, of uh, exhaustible natural resources. And they were argued that they were protecting natural resources. The problem was that at the same time they were restricting the export, they were increasing the domestic production. So it was very hard for them to argue with a straight face that they were conserving anything. This time around, they'll probably use the national security exception, which is different. And there's some now, thanks for the last couple of years, some precedent that, you know, the United States has maintained that 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 sort of self-judging that countries get to decide for themselves 
what's in their national security interest, and nobody can second-guess them. The WTO did not agree with that in separate cases involving Russia and the Ukraine and another one in, in the Middle East. And they decided that, yes, indeed, we in the WTO can comment on whether a national security exception is legitimate or not. So they may litigate. This time, the outcome may be different. But I'm not sure that that matters in the short run, because that's going to take several years to work its way through anyway. The real question, Andrew, is, is where you began, which is what are we going to do about it in, in practical terms? And, and the answer, I think, is that there's already things underway. Scott mentioned the 19 states. There are companies that are at least one and, and potentially some others that are operating and extracting the minerals. There are two problems, I think. One is to do it economically, which is hard. Although if China restricts the exports, one thing that will probably happen is prices will go up and that will make it more economical for new entrants into the market. So you'll probably see more U.S. companies making a go at it. It's also the issue really is less the mining, though, than the processing. I mean, this stuff is like dirt, basically. And you've got to go through a whole lot of dirt to get a relatively small amount of these minerals. Fortunately, you, you only need small amounts, you know, in your uh, iPhones and, you know, other uh, products, but you need to go through a lot of dirt to get the amount. And that's environmentally not good. You know, you create a mess and you create a lot of pollution, both air and water in the processing part. So right now we've got mining in the United States, but we don't have any processing. We have to ship it uh, away for processing. And that's kind of the missing link in the, in the chain here. If the United States wants to have an independent source or better, a trusted partner source, which means Canada or, or Mexico or somewhere else that's an ally, they need to uh, look at the whole supply chain and not simply extracting the minerals from the dirt. They have to look at the uh, processing of them as well. And that's where we're missing. Look, I think Bill's got it right in terms of the commercial situation. One of the things that makes investing in mining of these materials a challenge is that because China controls so much of the world supply and is willing to use export restraints, pricing is, is unpredictable, is less predictable in that environment. So you've got to be able to justify your operations both at low prices and high prices, because your economic rival and potentially geopolitical competitor essentially can manage the pricing through their own behavior, which makes it very difficult and, and, and may scare some investors away. Um, Bill's right. The processing is what we, what we lack in terms of completing the supply chain in the United States. So I have a proposal for, for how to do this, and I hearken back to the early days of post-World War II. Before the space race, there were amazing efforts to advance the uh, aircraft used in uh, warfare, particularly supersonic flight and, and the associated strategic advantages of supersonic aircraft. And the federal government, uh, in terms of the U.S. Air Force, set up a facility out in, in the high desert of California, Edwards Air Force Base. And that's where, if you read Tom Wolf's book, The Right Stuff, you'll understand how corporates got involved, the, the aviation companies got involved, and advanced a strategically important but quite risky area and really delivered air superiority throughout the, throughout the Cold War. And it was high risk stuff. I mean, fighter pilots were people who died at a high rate during warfare, but test pilots was an incredibly risky occupation. And yet uh, we took it on uh, for all the right reasons. And that's, that's why it's kind of the legend it is. And some of the, the heroes of that, like Chuck Yeager, we know today. Well, here's my idea for rare earths. Have the Department of Defense and the, in the Department of Interior make it a project. 
The Hoover Dam was a project like that. Here's the key to it. The federal government alone controls or owns about 640 million acres in the United States. 28% of the land area in the United States is federal land. So take some federal land that, that has prospects, good prospects for mining, use the federal resources to extract the materials and process them in the most environmentally friendly way conceivable. In fact, apply all the technology you have to, to get the, the best environmental result and develop our own strategic supply of rare earths for our, our use and our allies' use. So you think that's the best option that the Biden administration has? I think it will. I don't know if it's the best option. It's an option. They want an infrastructure program. That's infrastructure. There's both construction jobs and operating jobs in doing it. It is a, a national security priority, at least in my mind it is, if you want to be able to manufacture and be able to have access to these uh, key high-tech products. So I, I think it's, a, it's an entirely reasonable thing for the government to do. In your mind, Scott, this is similar to you know, we need our own ingredients for medicines. We can't be relying on China for that. Well, this is closer to national security because this affects a development of armaments and the high-tech edge we have in, in our defense systems. So I, I think this is, uh, I, there are lots of ways to make pharmaceuticals and, and the private sector seems to do a pretty good job of that. I do agree about trusted partners, which Bill raised before, but this is one I think you could take all the way and make it a DOD project. And then what you do is avoid the market distortions and the, the, the ups and downs in pricing that your strategic competitor can create today for private actors. Bill, what's the best option? That makes sense. I don't agree with all of Scott's reasoning. I, I have to say it, you know, processing dirt doesn't have the same drama and its excitement as test pilots do. That's definitely the case. <laughs> it's much more down to earth, as it were. But, you know, the, the history of the United States is that, that when we, that we're good at this. When we decide to devote resources to a national objective, we do it and we do it well and it works. And the, the aerospace industry and the space industry is a good example of, of, of how to do it and why it works. So I think it's a good idea. I think one of the things to keep in mind, though, which comes out is, is and this gets into, you know, it takes the topic down the road a little bit, but most of the market for this stuff is civilian and not military. These are ingredients in, in uh, iPhones. These are ingredients in environmental control equipment. These are ingredients in a whole bunch of, you know, electronic gear that you use, that individuals use, and not just the military. There is a clear security nexus. There's no question about that. Uh, but the larger element is civilian use. And that then, then you get into a whole bunch of marketing questions that you have to answer. You know, so you have a federal project. Is this going to be federally owned and operated? And these are, are these guys going to be federal employees? And then, and then the feds get all the, the rare earths and then they, they go into business basically and sell it. Or does the government lease the land to private parties? And then what is the relationship between the government and the private parties? Is it going to be like drilling for oil on federal lands and you just simply pay a royalty fee uh, for what you extract? Or do the feds get a percentage of the profit from the products that are made, you know, many levels downstream? There's a whole bunch of questions that I'm sure Scott has the answers to. But Well, we've tried it all those different ways. Scott has all the answers. Yes. Look, we have the Tennessee Valley Authority, which has created a power system and now is in the business of selling power. So that, that's a, they might as well be a commercial entity, but they're, they're totally federally owned. On the other hand, you have a lot of the action that is uh, 
in the in extractive industries today, whether it's oil and gas or whatever uh, mining that's on federal lands. Scott, I, I, I can't believe you, you're becoming a progressive. <laughs> After all these years of being a Republican, you're now favoring. Uh, well, I'm, I'm highly committed to, to national security. And this is one of these places where the security is an urgent matter and the market is being manipulated in some ways by, by our, our competitor, China. So, so the answer, I'll play the Republican for a moment. It's, I hate to admit it, but you heard it here first, switching roles. So the answer to Chinese market manipulation is American market manipulation. In the case of national security, yes. So what is national security? You know, we've had this argument before. Is it bacon? Well, I know some members of Congress have made that argument back in the days of the Smithfield acquisition. But look, uh, I, I just I just think we ought to keep it as a live option. Perhaps the, the, the current commercial operations will succeed. They'll get the financing they need. There's obviously more demand for, for these materials off into the future. So there's reason to be in the business. But if you've got a geopolitical rival who is distorting the markets, and preventing the private sector from operating, this seems to be a place where you could use some federal authority. I would think the way to do it, though, would be to probably be to reaffirm the private sector by doing it in a way that is not state control, but the government provides the opportunity, the federal lands is an example, and it may provide the capital or some of the capital or guarantee the investment. But at the end of the day, I think you want to let market forces prevail. More important, I think it raises a question that we're, we're dancing around and we should deal with directly, which is the overlap of security and economics. Right. So this is what I wanted to bring up. So what we're dancing around with and talking about here is the blurring of lines between economic security and national security. And that's something that the Trump administration was accused of doing in an ad hoc manner but that the Biden administration is giving the indication that they're making a strategic imperative. So what's the difference of what the Biden administration's doing in their strategy, blurring the lines between economic and national security, making them one and the same? And what are they setting out to do here to you know, make this a, a pillar of our national security? Well, I've actually asked that question, and the answer tends to be, in a more tactful form, that Trump did it stupidly and we're going to do it smart, without a lot of detail about what that, what that means. I think that, putting it in a larger context, the Chinese really started this, and they started this with their uh, military civil fusion doctrine that goes back you know, a number of years, where basically they, they argued that the two were all mixed together and we have to treat you know, a lot of economic stuff as a matter of, of security. And the United States is, is responding to that. And I think properly so, because the line gets blurred. One, I think there will be two differences between Biden and Trump. One is that there will be a, it won't be scattershot. It'll be, there'll be a strategy and a, a method uh, and a consistency behind it, I hope. I think the other difference that is more telling will probably be a more restrained definition of national security. You know, the, the, the bacon debate was kind of a joke, but if you, uh, uh, although people made it seriously, you know, but if you listen to Na Peter Navarro, virtually everything was linked to na national security, including the food supply and uh, a whole bunch of things. And I think that the Biden administration will have a tighter definition and it will probably be linked more clearly and directly to military requirements and military capabilities, keeping in mind that you know, there's an inevitable overlap there. Today's modern military depends on 
the information communications technology. It depends on, you know, very sophisticated chips, basically. And so does your phone. You know, there's a lot of spillover in, in these sectors, but I think the, uh, the Biden definition will still be narrower than the Trump definition. Yeah, look, President Trump connected foreign policy with economic strength. And that, that's not wrong. In fact, I, I happen to agree with that. He did not implement it in a particularly coherent way. And that's where I think the idea that economic strength is a core element and closely connected to our foreign policy is something that will carry over just because it's, it's a fact of the way the world operates. But I do think that the, uh, I would agree with Bill that there, there probably will be more clearer policies and tactics than what we saw from the previous administration. Although they're talking a lot about sort of this in the context of, of manufacturing and focusing on U.S. manufacturing, bringing supply chains home, those kinds of things tend to get woven into the argument. And uh, look, I'm, I'm a fan of manufacturing. I've started my professional career in manufacturing, but I think it's got to be a strategy, not romance. We can't want to attract manufacturing because we like manufacturing plants. It's got to be, there's got to be a strategic element. It's got to be things that, where the manufacturing activity is something the United States can have comparative advantage in with or without federal efforts. Well, what do you guys see as the danger of equating economic and national security? Well, I think, I mean, I agree with Scott. I, I think it's in today's economy, it's, it's inevitable and, and it produces benefits. I mean, there's a long history of, of basically things that started out uh, with the internet, uh, started out as a defense activity and there's a lot of spillovers and the consumers benefit. I, I think the danger is if you define everything as essential to national security, one problem then is you have this enormous sort of never ending uh, scope of government intervention in the economy, which I, I think is probably not not healthy over the long term. And the, the second element is uh, you lose your ability to prioritize. Some things have to be more important than other things. And, you know, one of the things I learned in the export control business is if everything is essential, then really nothing is essential because it becomes very difficult to enforce your policy. How do you decide what is more or less important if you've already decided that everything is important. And, you know, the job of uh, government is to pick and choose. Somebody smarter than I am said that. Was that W? May have been, but yeah, he talked about strategy as well. So in any case, look, I think the one place we have to be careful of it is is how that translates with our allies and partners. I know in the Asia Pacific in particular, many of our friends in, the, in that region would rather have us talk economic policy than and have that be foreign policy as well as strategic or military issues. What talking economic policy does is allows our friends and allies to hedge with others, particularly China, which they all have to do for commercial reasons, but puts them in a less uncomfortable spot. So it's really the, the implementation of this has to be done right, which I think is what I'm basically doing is agreeing with Bill. So who is going to be the Biden administration's point person for this? Or there are a series of people that are really going to run this policy? Is it coming out of the National Security Council? Is it coming from state, treasury? Who are the key people running this? Well, there's an army of them. Biden's hiring a lot of people. And I think this is an area where policy direction will be from the White House and the, the role of the cabinet will be implementation, not policy direction. We had a, a session last week with uh, Peter Harrell, who is on the NSC staff and the NEC staff. 
Uh, and this is his portfolio. Meeting was off the record, so I'm not going to say anything about it. But trade guys have a lot of off the record meetings. The ultimate insiders. Yeah, so we don't invite you, Andrew, because we figure you'll well, blab. That's because, like, you know, you're a public affairs I talk guy. I to the media. That's my job, man. <laughs> you, you spend all day talking to the media. <laughs> yeah, we can't we can't talk about the secret meetings. But suffice to say, there's a lot of people working on this, and they're taking the president's campaign promises very seriously. In my experience, Trump being the exception, that happens, that lasts about 18 months, and then they tend to be forgotten. But we're in the first 18 months, so these things are serious. And they're really taking a very close look at supply chains. Uh, and this will be an NSC and EC exercise. Peter's doing it. There's several other people who have just come on board at the NEC that are going to be doing it. We're going to have a public event, commercial here, with on, on supply chains in the pharmaceutical sector, where this will come up in that particular sector. And uh, our guest is going to be Tim Manning. We ran into a classic scheduling problem today. We got a note from him saying that the president called a meeting at the same time that we were scheduled to do a public event with him. And they had the temerity to suggest that the president was more important than CSIS. Oh, my. Which was a disappointment. But we will reschedule. And you accepted this from him, that the president of the United States was more important than a CSIS event? We, I had no choice. Uh, okay. It was presented as a fait accompli, but we will reschedule. And that'll give us an opportunity, I think, to look into that particular uh, supply chain and how they view PPE and pharmaceutical products as a national security element. Mostly, we're going to explore the trusted partner idea, because what uh, what we've concluded in our research previously was that if you try to do everything onshore, you're going to fail and you're going to come up with products that are probably not as good and certainly more expensive. If you use a trusted partner model, namely other countries that are allies and friends that will support us when we need them and vice versa, it's a better model and it's a more economically efficient model. So we're going to test that out with, with the administration and see where they are on it. Look, it's a good thing they're thinking about it because this is difficult stuff. What we know about supply chains is they're highly specialized and idiosyncratic. Many of them, one firm's supply chains will look very different from another. And so this is, I guess, uh, John Wayne said, you know, life is hard. It's harder if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so I'd rather have them know what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's right. He really said that. Well, that's a John. Well, he said, he said it's harder if you're stupid. Oh. Well, that's true, too. Which is true as well, but yeah. Right. So, I mean, look, I guess it's needless to say, but this strategy, the confluence of economic and national security, it comes in response to the modern challenge of China as a rising superpower, no? Yes, but there's also a political element to it that I think deserves to be mentioned. You know, Democrats, and I say this with some confidence, having been down this road for years, have pushed the kind of thing that Scott's talking about for a very long time. Uh, Democrats have not generally been afraid of industrial policy. It's criticized as intervention in the market. It's criticized as picking winners and losers. We had a, you know, in the Obama administration, there was a, a solar panel company that failed, got substantial government subsidies, and that gave Republicans the opportunity to say, see, you messed with the market and bad things happen. One of the things that Democrats have learned over the years, though, that you, is you can bridge the philosophical gap with Republicans if you make the national security argument. You know, Republicans will buy anything if you tell them it's a defense issue. And now the, the beauty of the argument is you can do it with a straight face. It really is a defense issue. These things really are national security questions, and the Democrats don't have to lie about it. So it has the benefit of being true. Right? It has the benefit of being true. And I think that's why you're going to see 
you know, consensus is too strong a term to say about the Hill these days, but you're going to see, I think, a critical mass in support of going forward with these kinds of initiatives because both sides appreciate how important it is. Okay. Well, this wouldn't be a Trade Guys podcast in the age of COVID without talking about vaccines. So let's talk about the new WTO boss, Ngozi, on vaccines. Now, what is she trying to do? She's literally trying to, you know, make it more equitable. But what is the solution that she's trying to achieve? And do you think she's going to be able to bridge the divide between developed and developing countries to find a a solution? Well, the subject here is uh, what she calls the vaccine protectionism and wants to overcome the the notion that and and get involved in the debate, which is actually quite active in Geneva, about whether there should be licensing of vaccine production and how to handle the intellectual property rights associated with the urgent need to deploy the COVID vaccine. So that's the that's the, what she stepped into, and uh, she's looking as the new leader to uh, take a current issue and take it somewhere. Bill, did I correctly summarize the debate? I'll take it a step further. She suggested a, a third way, which is licensing. I mean, the, the issue is developing countries complaining correctly that they're going to get the short end of the stick, and the vaccine's going to go to the rich countries first, and they're going to a lot of people in developing countries are going to die. And they're not wrong about that. The question is that she's wrestling with is what to do about it. And she suggested licensing as a way out. That creates other questions and other problems, the main one being what are the terms of, uh, of licensing? And this has been a fraud issue in, in the WTO in the past because there's an argument over compulsory licensing. Licensing means somebody has to pay. You know, if you've invented a vaccine and are marketing it, and uh, licensing means you're going to let, you know, somebody in a developing country have a license to produce the vaccine there. That's a good idea, but it means that somebody has to pay. And that means that then there's going to be a big ar- argument over how much they pay. And is the originator of the vaccine going to be willing to do that anyway? Or do they want to keep all the profits for themselves? So what the WTO debate usually ends up being about is about not voluntary licensing, but compulsory licensing where a government can force the inventor of a product to license, in this case, the vaccine, to somebody inside his country to produce, that makes the originator of the product very unhappy because it's basically forcible turning over of his intellectual property to somebody else. And uh, when the WTO has done this in the past, which has been with pharmaceuticals, anti-malarial drugs, I think was, or HIV drugs have been two of the examples, There have been a lot of language about it has to be a health crisis, it has to be emergency, it has to be severe. There's all these adjectives that go along with it, all of which I think probably the current situation uh, qualifies for. But it still has led to a number of cases of countries basically finding emergencies where there probably wasn't one. And it's also led in some cases to the product being uh, marketed in the developing countries and then bought up and, and resold at large profits back to developed countries. So there's not always a a policing apparatus in the developing country to make sure that the drugs go to the poor people that they're supposed to be going to. I have a different problem with what what, uh, she's doing. It's an earnest attempt at finding a solution for the wrong problem. Okay. Vaccine manufacture is not the problem to solve. It's last mile distribution. That's what we've learned in the U.S. rollout. 
And so my observation would be, first, vaccine manufacturer of any kind is highly sophisticated. If you don't have the facilities to do it now, you're too late in this. In the case of this vaccine. So it, it's not about licensing manufacturing. It's about figuring out how to distribute in the last mile. And we had, we had 50 different state rollouts. And uh, at least the early tallies, West Virginia had the best per capita coverage. Because of their distribution. Because of the, the way they thought through and, and were prepared for that last mile. And so that, if I were getting any international organization to focus on something, I'd get them to focus on that on a country basis or a political jurisdiction basis, because that's what gets people's shots that they need. Uh, Scott's right about that. And what I said was irrelevant. But I will bet you that the WTO debate is about what I was talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm sadly, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So this begs the question, you know, obviously the developing countries are upset with the United States and other developed nations. You know, one story that got lost you know, or is underreported in the larger sense that, you know, when, when President Biden bought 200 million doses the other day, that means that developing countries get much, much, much less initially. So, you know, the theory that the Biden administration has is that we need to take care of ourselves before we can help others. And, you know, we need to be healthy as a country and not a sick nation so we can, you know, effectively help others. I get that. I completely understand that. But then you have all these other problems that you guys just pointed out here. Um, so it begs the question, Bill, when are you going to get Ngozi to come on the trade guys so we can discuss this with her? Well, we can ask. We already had her. You know, last summer we did a, a series, another one of our private secret meetings, Andrew, that we didn't invite you to. I'm well aware of the secret meetings that you had with Ngozi I was not invited to. That was when you were interviewing her to make recommendations whether she was, you know, fit for office. You made the recommendation she was fit for office. So now I, I do believe that she is fit to come on the trade guys. And, you know, I think it's about time. So, you know, let's not delay here. Good idea. I think I have to say coming on the trade guys is a fairly low bar. But <laughs> she, cer she certainly passes it. And it's a good idea. We should invite her. Yeah. Hey, but, you know, she's new in her job. Maybe she thinks we're this is a really uh, special kind of assignment. We can't give you the Nobel Prize, but you can come on our podcast. <laughs> and she knows that the, it's the right audience. She can speak directly to the people who care about all the issues that she's addressing. So there you have it. Gentlemen, we will work on asking Madam Ngozi to come on our podcast and in the meantime, we'll be back with all of our listeners next week. Same trade time, same trade channel. So we'll see you then. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.